Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. So... We're obviously very excited about tonight's events and the authors we have with us. Um, the two of them are going to do a more thorough and entertaining job of introducing themselves and their amazing work and each other than I could possibly do. Um, so I'm just going to say, please help me give a warm welcome to Helen Knode and James Elroy. Good evening, motherfuckers, <laughs> and thanks for coming. You had options tonight. You could have stayed at home and attended to your sex lives and your drug habits, but you didn't. You came here to see Ms. Kinode and I, and we are nothing but grateful. Noir is the most over-scrutinized offshoot of the hard-boiled genre. It burned like a four-coil hot plate from the end of World War II up until 1960s. It is a laboratory to discuss the big themes of race, sex, systemic corruption. It is also a preposterous style statement that each and every one of you need to get over. <laughs> I did a while ago. It is the thrust of my spiel here tonight. Ms. Kinode will extrapolate off of it. If noir is to be embodied in one man, it is me. I was born in Los Angeles, the film noir epicenter at the height of the film noir era. It was also 1948, the year of the rat in Chinese astrology. I was very, very lucky. Geography is destiny. There I was, Wilshire Boulevard, Good Samaritan Hospital. I came out bawling, squalling, screaming. My first two questions were, where's the women? My second question was, where's the booze? I was headed for the gas chamber in my crib on the night of my birth. <laughs> Literature saved me because a visitation occurred on the first night that I was alive. A mystical dog, a borzoi, the Alfred A. Knopf colophon, symbol, and mascot 
walked up to me. He put his paws up on the ledge of my crib. And he explained my writing future, and in part, the writing future of Helen Canode. He told us that we would go through periods of intense emotional disengagement, an exhaustive and exhausting, debilitating and redemptive love of literature. We would become addled with motion pictures, film noir in particular, at different stages of our life, would work our way to noir and through noir, personal geography, crime, a traumatic experience in my case, the traumatic experience of our marriage, on Miss Canode's case, <laughs> and we would both end up as novelists taking a divergent path and a convergent path to what is, in the end, similar revelation. On that note, ladies and gentlemen, Helen Canode. As usual, I think we may be having two separate conversations. <laughs> But I wanted to say that I'd never heard of noir until I moved to Los Angeles in 1985 to work for the LA Weekly. I landed in LA, sick of New York, not liking the intellectual life in New York, very bored by it, feeling that it was... Ben Hecht, one of my favorite screenwriters, said that New York was a tight-lipped schoolmarm of a city, always handing out notes, marks. And that's how I felt about New York City after my Ivy League training. New York just felt like everybody, it was just snobby and monolithic. It felt, even though lots of wild things happen in New York, and I landed in LA and I was so happy. And I have some colleagues from the LA Weekly here, and they have to agree with me. You land at the LA Weekly in 1985, and you have got some wild ass shit going on there. It is a scene in itself, and also covering the scene. It's creating the scene. It is the scene. And the renegator maverick intellectuals, I'll put that in quotes because I know New Yorkers would, but the intellectual life of LA was just I mean, it was so hot, I was so jazzed by it. And at the weekly, I would say four, four separate strands of thinking going on there. And I call it thinking, I think it was thinking. It was also living, people were living these things. Um, punk rock, punk, LA punk. Rock and roll, classical American rock and roll. I would also say the utopian new age and progressive politics all those things together, mixed in whatever way everybody was mixing those things, and I landed in that thing completely out to sea because I never met people like this in my life who didn't care what other people thought of what they were thinking. They didn't care what had been written before, and everybody had their own gods, their own canon. There were all these countercultures converging at the LA Weekly with their own gods and their own canon, and for a, a year or two years I was trying to figure out where I fit in all of that. And noir 
was part of that. The first time I ever heard of Noir was at the Weekly. The first time I ever heard of Jim Thompson, the first time I ever heard of Robert Johnson, the first time I ever heard of Carl Jung was at the LA Weekly. Well, probably not the first time I'd heard of them, but the first time any, I met anybody who took them seriously. And uh, I, I started to, I saw all the canonical uh, movies of the noir. I'm sorry Stephen Mickelin isn't here tonight because he was the detour guy. I don't like you, Roberts. I mean, he was saying that on detour. And reading all of Jim Thompson, reading all the Black Lizards, reading all those novels, and getting sucked, sucked into not the noir worldview, but I would call it the bohemian, on the one hand, the romance of losing strand of noir, or at least bohemian thinking, and on the other hand, darkness as religion. The first time I ever discovered that darkness was a religion was at the LA Weekly. Not just wearing black clothing, but that rock and roll strand of devil at the crossroads, and sin, and redemption, and all the Bible stuff that went into rock and roll, the roots of rock and roll, and I know there's people here who are going to be going, eh, I can't believe she's explaining rock and roll like that. But, but there were, we all know who I'm, I know, we all know, <laughs> we know who I'm talking about here at the Weekly. And I got very jazzed by all this. It just seemed like we were at the epicenter of cool and hip, and this was all this stuff I didn't know about, and I had to know about if I wanted to be cool and hip. But I was reviewing movies, and there wasn't a, there was, you know, again, classical film noir and stuff, but that the alternative cinema, the independent cinema, and finding those beautiful loser themes and the romance of darkness themes, and I swallowed that Kool-Aid. Boy, did I ever swallow that Kool-Aid. And the end result of that was in my first novel, the Ticket Out, now out of print, so I am going to say it's available as an ebook or online. Um, my first novel, The Ticket Out, was based, very much rooted, three things came to, four things came together with The Ticket Out. One of them was James Elroy, who, when I met him in 1990, went around telling every unhappy journalist to write a novel. And three other things, very influential, the film director, Catherine Bigelow, you know, all know she's now won an Academy Award, but when I first interviewed her in 1989 for Blue Steel, I saw her as a tragic figure. Um, she was a woman who wanted to, to direct big budget action movies for Hollywood and I just figured she was doomed. She was never going to do that because it's a boys club, those big budget action pictures. And she proved me wrong, but she was a very striking person. Um, her, her existential situation, her metaphysical, her artistic situation, Catherine Bigelow. The second thing was Thelma and Louise. I know this is all ancient history for everybody, but uh, Thelma and Louise, a genre movie that showed that if a woman gets into genre, it changes the plot. It's a road movie. Two women go on the road. First thing that happens, the woman gets almost raped. They go, they have to go on the lam because they shoot this guy. Uh, very influential. And the third thing was the Black Dahlia. I'd never heard of the Black Dahlia before I read James Elroy. And Betty Short is such an interesting victim. And she makes all your feminist thinking about violence against women and the objects of violence. James's treatment of Betty Short is extremely sympathetic, which struck me about his novel. Um, one of the things I liked about his novel, even though he was considered a, a he-man and all sorts of other things, I thought his treatment of women was very sympathetic. And all these things combined 
to make me want to write the darkest, the darkest picture I could paint of the condition of women in Hollywood. Now this is still a fun book, I should say. It's a very fun read, but it's very anchored in that pessimistic sense. My one strand of thinking about mainstream movies, which is women are screwed, they're never going to get the big jobs, they're, they're, they're going to be actresses, but they're never going to get the big jobs, they're not gonna, never going to have the power in Hollywood because it's just, it's a boys game. And also in noir, they romanticize and mystify women. It's the dead blonde, it's the black widow and stuff like that. And as a woman, I have a hard time, I've realized finally I was having a hard time into the crime genre because of that. And I thought, well, what happens if I do a hard-boiled woman and anatomize what makes a woman hard-boiled and then have her find a dead woman and start to put that in play where the woman is then looking at herself and getting involved in all these noir things, but she's a woman doing these things. I may not be very clear on this subject, but this is a really good book. But it's, it's, it's <laughs> and if I were a more profound writer, it would be a tragic book, but it's actually just noir. It's just noir and a lot of action. The Chicago Tribune called this book highly literate, exceptionally action-packed and occasionally harrowing and I know the Chicago Tribune would not lie to you. So I published this book in 2003 and while I was finishing it and having it sold, 14 rejections, um, uh, James had a nervous breakdown. I'm not allowed to go into too many details. He's allowed to write a book about it but I'm not allowed to go into any details about it. But I will say that I went to hell and almost died and I'm, I'm back from hell now to tell you that the darkness is not just a literary trope. And it is not just a spectator sport. It is real, and it's powerful, and it's playing for keeps, and it wants you. It wants you. And anybody here who's been through that knows what that means. It wants you. And once I had that experience and came back from hell and almost dying, I felt light as a feather. You're looking at a happy woman these days. <laughs> and so, no more noir, wildcat play. This book started out, I started blocking it when we were at the worst, the worst, the worst of the things I can't detail here. The very worst of it. It started out in the same tone as the ticket out. I was going to write this very heavy, complex book about energy and change. The uh, ticket out is about small scale change. I need to change my heroine because Hollywood is not going to change. She really needs to change. But I really, I saw myself going wide, wide with wildcat play into large questions, philosophical change, technological change, climate change, energy systems, all this kind of stuff. And I had this big, you know, I started, I was going to have a German wind expert murdered in an, a dying oil town in the San Joaquin Valley and, and have these ruminations on how are we going to solve large-scale questions when we're still murdering each other and stealing each other's money, you know, stuff like that, these kind of intellectual things. But after going to hell, I realized I, I just wanted to have fun. And I didn't want to have a pessimistic outlook. And as I 
came out of that, I was also researching the novel because the oil business is the largest business in the world and it is a monster. And I started not knowing anything about it even though I'm fourth generation oil patch and grew up in an oil town, Calgary, Alberta. But I'm a girl and, and when I grew up, oil business was for boys. And so I didn't know anything about it. So as I started to research it and started to come out of the, the hellish period of my life, the whole book changed and it became an old-fashioned mystery with a bad guy and good guys and a, a novel about time and place. And a couple of key things happened while I was researching it. Very fun stuff. I mean, this was the journalistic uh, initiative of my life, cold calling the oil business. I mean, these guys don't need to talk to you, and furthermore, they don't want to talk to you. Um, but I persisted, mostly in Bakersfield, but, um, and they all ended up talking to me, but I was in Houston, I was in Calgary, I went all over the place trying to get somebody to talk to me. Two key things happened for the book. This is a wildcat uh, drilling operation, drilling for natural gas, because the at the time I started researching this, natural gas was the big coming thing, this whole shale, now, now it's all hydraulic fracturing and a big problem. But at the time I was researching it, everybody was going, natural gas, tight gas, uh, shale gas, coal bed meth methane, all this unconventional natural gas. It's, the U.S. is enough to be energy, has enough in reserve to be energy independent. Everybody's going crazy for natural gas. Um, so it wasn't a, you know, the, the downside of that wasn't a problem at the time, but I went, I was up in Calgary, my hometown, and somebody told me about a couple of Calgary companies that got their behinds kicked with a wildcat drilling operation in Kern County. I thought, oh, Kern County, okay. So I went to the DOG in Bakersfield and looked at this well, this well they drilled, and it was fantastic. I use it as the template for the, for the drilling operation in here. And the second thing that happened was I was researching the novel out in western Oklahoma driving around and an old tool pusher, the tool pusher is the guy who runs the drilling rig, who works with the drilling contractor. You have the operators who are paying for the well, the big guys, and then you have the contractors who are drilling the well, the actual, you know. And this old tool pusher, for some reason, that remains mysterious even to him, let me on his drilling rig and let me hang around on the rig floor and watch them run pipe and, and break out pipe and make up pipe and all that stuff. And he agreed to tell me everything he knew about the oil fields, which he'd been in for 50 years. Everything he knew about the oil fields, he would tell me in exchange for me writing his life story for his grandchildren. So this is actually two books. <laughs> It's two books, and the tool pushers become one of my best friends. It's karmic, and uh, and this book ended up being a fond portrait and fond hello and goodbye to grassroots American oil, and to the fossil fuel age, and to a family tradition. So I'm going to read you first four pages of the ticket. Ah, the ticket out. I'm going to read you the first. I'm going to read you the first four pages of Wildcat Play. Everything you need to know, the same heroine from there is here. Everything you need to know is in here. I stood at the window of the quick gas and suddenly laughed out loud. The only people on the streets of Wilson at 2 a.m. were drunks leaving the bar, meth addicts, and cops. <laughs> I watched a patrol car glide into the curb across the way. A policeman got out to check on a guy who'd collapsed in front of the newspaper office. 
What on earth was I doing here? I'd left LA to come live with an old family friend in Wilson, an oil town in the San, Joaqu San Joaquin Valley over the mountains to the north. But for weeks I couldn't find a job. I discovered that being an ex-journalist and movie critic qualified me for nothing. In fact, it made people suspicious. It made them even more suspicious that I'd settle for any crumb bum gig when my only reference was Joe Balch, Wilson's leading citizen and largest local employer. Then yesterday, the manager at the Quick Gas hired me for nights, and tonight was my first shift on. I watched a battered sedan pull up and park outside. There was a kid asleep in the car seat in back. The woman driving wore a parka over her nightgown. She came in to buy $5 worth of gas and a pack of cigarettes. Not bothering anymore with hello or a smile, I took her money and switched on the pump she asked for. I'd been making some version of that sale for hours. Gas and cigarettes, beer and or candy, occasionally a quart of motor oil or milk. People who used the quick gas I'd learned did not smile or want to chat especially after midnight. The woman left and I turned back to the window. Smiling, I tapped my reflection in the glass. Anne Whitehead of Calgary and Paris and LA. I was barely 35 and my life was a smoking ruin. <laughs> a year ago, I'd found a woman murdered in the guest house where I lived behind a mansion in the Hollywood Hills. I pushed my way into the LAPD investigation and in the process fell in love with Detective Douglas Lockwood. The investigation led to near death for me, <laughs> bloody death for three people which I witnessed up close, and a political scandal. I'd quit my hip-happening newspaper job because movies and hip tasted like dust. With no idea what to do next, I spent my savings and sold my laptop and car to eat. I was living out of a suitcase, sleeping on a girlfriend's couch, and resisting Doug's invitation to move in when Joe Balch said, come to Wilson. Joe and his wife, Alice, were old friends of my grandparents. I'd known the Balches since before I was born. Leaning closer to the glass, I checked my face. It was tough to see with the lights of the store behind me. I deserved every minute of the apocalypse, though, and felt like a better person for it. Dire experience had also improved my looks, not physically. Physically, I was about the same as a year ago. I was still attractive without being pretty in a small, athletic way, and still had too much unrestrained personality around the jawline. Although my brown hair seemed wavier, <laughs> and my blue eyes were sparkling again after being so dead and harrowed. The big thing was I was finally over the worst. I was feeling coherent, coherent inside, more stuck together, and my humor was back. That's really what improved me, I thought, the return of my normal sense of fun. Engine rumble caught my ear and I looked outside. A tractor trailer hauling drill pipe went screaming by, headed east, probably to Bakersfield. I watched the semi disappear and flashed on a scene from one of my favorite movies, Sunset Boulevard. It's New Year's Eve, the night Joe Gillis realizes Norma Desmond's in love with him. He and Norma are lounging on a divan in her private ballroom and she's bought him a gold cigarette case he doesn't want to accept. He says she's bought him too much already. Norma doesn't get what his problem is, she has tons of money. The way Gloria Swanson says it, she lolls her head back, flaps her wrist inward, and goes, I'm rich. 
She describes how rich she is, listing her various investments and ending with, I've got oil in Bakersfield, pumping, pumping, pumping. Her wrists flap in a bored way with each pump and pumping. She even sticks one leg up and flaps a bored foot. Lifting my foot, I flapped it in rhythm and said out loud, pumping, pumping, pump. Open the cash register and give me the money. I froze. The guy was standing behind me pointing a gun at my back. He had on dark glasses and his hair looked like a wig in the reflection. Now. Anger boiled up so fast I almost choked. This was not going to happen my first shift. No, I won't. Yelling, I twirled and slapped the gun right out of the guy's hand. It went flying down an aisle as I raced around the corner. Get out of here, get out of here, get out of here, get out of here. Caught off guard, the guy started to back away. I shoved him towards the entrance. Go get a job, you freaking loser. There's a boom on in the oil fields. The price of crude oil is at record highs. He caught his sleeve on a rack and spun around. I kicked his leg, snatched the door open, and shoved him out to the parking lot. Drilling companies are hiring. Service companies are hiring. Western Well is hiring. Halliburton is hiring. Balch is hiring. The guy tripped over the sidewalk, losing his glasses, stumbling for balance. He didn't see and I didn't see the cops who'd pulled in for gas. I was yelling and the guy was running and out of the dark, two cops were there. Shouting, stop! They blocked the guy, knocked him down and had him spread-eagled and cuffed in four seconds flat. The guy was too surprised to resist. I yelled, he tried to rob the store! The cops looked over as my knees gave way and I sat down abruptly on the concrete. One cop hurried up to me, are you okay? I managed to nod, then burst out laughing. I was shaking from the adrenaline, panting for breath, and I could feel sweat dripping down my face, but still I had to laugh. The armed robber was a sign. It was time to take my own advice. In a nutshell, why Ms. Kinode and I have outgrown noir, it does not encompass personal morality and heroism. Ms. Kinode is a happy human being. I am a happy and tormented human being. This has always been my existential state. I am considered to be the great living noir writer. I will take it because it sells books. Ms. Canode will take whatever sells books. We are both opportunists. <laughs> I have never written noir. I write historical novels set in Los Angeles, the film noir epicenter during the film noir era. Journalists, film buffs, cineasts of all stripes, hipsters, former hipster right here, all of you, with the exception of my few friends who are working as police officers in this room, are hipsters, love noir, over-scrutinize it, and over-subscribe meaning to it. As I stated in my prelude, noir is the most over-scrutinized offshoot of the hard-boiled canon.
from 1945 to 1955, it was a subversive genre in American films and secondarily in American literature. But let me ask you this. Do you want to be unhappy and attribute that state of being to everyone else on earth? Do you honestly think that all love leads after the first kiss within six months to the gas chamber <laughs> at San Quentin Prison? The more you scrutinize noir, the more you see that it is a petty, reductive subgenre of the hard-boiled canon that seeks to nullify God, spirituality, the tenets of organized religion, personal morality, and our responsibility for personal happiness. I didn't realize this with this level of consciousness until I had had the nervous breakdown that Ms. Kinode referenced during her pitch. No details, however, if you would like to read about my nervous breakdown in great, great detail, the Hilliker curse right there. On sale, opportunistically, here at Skylight Books. I came through it. I realized that the half dozen great noir movies that exist, Dublin Indemnity, Sunset Boulevard, Crime Wave, Out of the Past, Nightfall, the lineup, did not influence me one nanosecond compared to the great artistic influence of my life, and it's not even the printed word, it's classical music. And how does this manifest as literature, size, scope, the interplay of themes, sonata form, the dramatic expository first moment, the slow, elegiac, often mordant and bittersweet second movement, the heavily expository wrap-up movement that is in many ways genre-derived and not as good as the first. Who is my greatest teacher? It's not Raymond Chandler, it's not Dashiell Hammett. It certainly isn't guys that I've always despised like David Goodis and Jim Thompson. It's the greatest artist ever produced by God and civilization, and it's Beethoven. He is inexplicable. We, we don't know him. We don't know how this man, stone deaf, could have written music that was up here when everybody else, as good, great, or near great as they may have been, was down here. We only know that he lived at a level of abstraction that we, as mortal human beings, cannot comprehend, much less explain. I lived in Beethoven. I lay in the dark, and I brooded. 
I have done this for many, many years, but not with the rigor and level of intensity that I did from 2002 up through the writing of my most recent novel, Blood's a Rover. What was it? What did I come out with? Oddly, it's a version of what Ms. Canode came out with. It was a desire to be light, airy, devoted, driven by notions of goodness in my personal life, and to write my great theme, which was not systemic corruption, which was not any kind of noir negativity, no ode to police corruption, politics as demons, the first kiss as leading to the gas chamber. It was bad men in love with strong women. In my novel, Bloods Are Over, a woman asks a man, what do you want? He says to her, I want to fall, and I want you to catch me on the way down. I got it from Beethoven. I didn't get it from anyone in the noir canon. I had to live through noir in my cultural life and in my work, in my personal life very much so, until I got that point. Ms. Kanoa, back to you. I think there's a bit of revisionist history going on here. <laughs> Can I say that? I mean, National Habit's important to you. Jack Webb is important to you. L.A. and that underbelly is important to you. All those things, maybe there's, it's not just what both things could be going on simultaneously. The, the Beethoven strand and the L.A. underbelly strand, there's both, the, both things going on simultaneously. It's true, but Jack Webb wrote primarily about, you're correct, the nobility of police officers. People talk of my books as screeds against the Los Angeles Police Department. Nothing could be further from the truth. They are about rogue elements within the Los Angeles Police Department. That point is implicitly and explicitly made. What Hammett wrote about, and this is a quote from a jurist named David T. Bazelon, was the masculine figure in American society. He is primarily a job holder. He goes at his job with a ruthless determination that proceeds from an unwillingness to go beyond it. This relationship to the job is perhaps typically American. The question of doing or not doing a job competently has replaced the whole larger issue of good and evil. I had to be subsumed with notions of good before I could outgrow the influence of Dashiell Hammett. He was essential in the beginning. You're correct, Helen. Okay. That's all I just wanted to say. You seem to be erasing a lot of history. It's all I'm a revisionist, motherfucker. <laughs> and I, like you, I'm always thinking of shit and what it means. <laughs> okay, well, that was my last question. Don't you want to talk some more? <laughs> I thought maybe our audience might have a question. This is Skip Howard, James. Hey, Mr. Heller, how are you? 
pleasure to meet you. Before I say anything else, of any living American writer, I have to give you the credit for batting average. You've written more really just wonderful things, and I selfishly, I hope you write another nonfiction book specifically about boxing sometime in the next few years. Just some of my favorite writing that you've done. Uh, this, this has been about that, and I am from Philadelphia, so in addition to disagreeing with you about David Goodis, Mahler, and boxing. Uh, but I was going to say is it seems to me like you guys are both going, hey, we went to high school, we went through that, that was part of the training, but we are no more going back to high school, going back to that than you would go back to high school. Meaning more being high school. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, I don't mean to be like, hey, you're biting the hand that feeds you, but you know, you are dismissive of a genre that you move through and move through beautifully, both of you, and respectfully. And uh, I'm not sure that I'm dismissive of it. I'm just saying I can't do that anymore. It's not essential. It's not my viewpoint, actually. I, I adopted it as a literary thing and then realized it wasn't my viewpoint. <laughs> <laughs> well, Skip, you're a musician. Aren't there musicians who used to be intellectual for you and now are not? Sure, but I don't, I don't go, ah, Hanklin's, you know, it's, he's always going to be there if yeah. I haven't yeah. played a record of that in 20 years. Or even, like, with Beethoven, somebody who's working on fairly well. When I first got excited about Beethoven, for instance, it was mostly the larger works, uh, you know. And now that's not the case so much. It's more the smaller works. I, I've become less inclined to be affectionate to things that announce their importance on the way in. So for me, Beethoven has become like quartets in a lot of ways because I'm 46 now. I'm not looking at like, wow, look at how fast that right hand goes up the keyboard, you know, as the earlier piano sonatas just have a lot of real gymnastic stuff in them. But it's not that I would renounce the stuff that I came through. It's just part of the great thing, you know. What I dislike is noir as a lifestyle and people who think it is the essential truth about human beings. That's it. It's not universal in that sense. It's not Beethoven in that sense. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And I wouldn't say I dismiss it. I would just say I use it to say a certain thing, but I'm not, I don't want to write another pessimistic book. <laughs> Next question. Is that okay? <laughs> Next question. Come on, folks. I'm expecting questions. Okay. Mm -hmm. What the heck? <laughs> so, so talk about what you're talking about, like with, when you talk about spirituality and that. Um, I mean, talk about your experience around this in terms of your writing. I have always felt hot-wired to God. I have always felt consumed with divine purpose. I feel it more consciously now. I feel divinity in my life more poignantly at 64 than I did at 46 or 29 or 37 and I reach for it, and I am determined to write two extended bodies of work 
I'm a healthy 64 too. A new quartet and a new trilogy, and they will be the biggest, the richest, the deepest, the swingingest, the grooviest, the most redemptive, <laughs> the more the most hot wired to God books that I've written to date. And Nothing sounds more arrogant than an arrogant guy like me talking about the value of humility. <laughs> Yet I feel it. You're not, you're so not are you, uh, would, would you call yourself politically a conservative? Yes, I'm a conservative. No, no, oh, no. Helen has, Helen, Helen asked me not to get into politics. Thank you. Right. And I made a promise to her before the gig. Or yes. That you had uh, voted for Obama because you felt he was deeper. What? Excuse me. Is what? It politics? Politics? What? No politics. Dan, no politics, man. No politics. Stop this shit. All of you. You motherfuckers, stop that shit now. Kill your ass. Yes, Lisa Stafford. Helen, yes. What's next for you? Well, you know. Yes, can I discuss my spirituality? <laughs> I went to hell and came back with visions. That's got nothing to do with the Bible or James's God. So I'm hoping that. So that hoping no politics. <laughs> oh no, uh, I know, and I don't have a problem. Um, and so I hope to write that, but I'm not going to write any more homicide procedures, no more, no more killing for recreation. Yeah. But I Does that mean no more Anne or? Yes, I think this is the last Anne White novel. I had a two-book deal. Um, and she's obviously at 35 younger than I am. Uh, unless I just do a Rex Stout where I keep her perpetually at 35. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but thank you for asking. I, I, did, I went to hell and came back with visions, and now everything is different. So I don't know what I'm going to do next. I don't know what I'm going to do. But it'd probably be mystery. I like the higher mysteries. I consider this stuff the lower mysteries, murdering and, and all that bad behavior. And then they're the higher mysteries. What makes the cosmos tick, kind of stuff, right? Yeah. I don't know. I just, <laughs> okay. Stop. Yeah. Yeah. I was just curious is there that much of a difference between the early genre stuff in terms of a moral universe? Because the endings are always tidy and they're organized, and in a sense, even though they're pessimistic, throughout, they are reinforcing an orderly universe. It's the idea of heroism in human beings, individuals, as triumphant, as self-sacrifice asserting itself over self-interest of the possibility of love flourishing between people. And I like a good, tidy, crime is solved ending, but I also like to leave the reader with the sense that the events described in the preceding pages will continue to ramify and it is the responsibility of each and every individual reader to make the determination as to how. 
this is partially the sense I get of my covenant with the reader. There are people I've seen many times, this man, man in the back with the dog, come to my gigs. You meet a small percentage of your readers in gigs like this. You meet critics, you meet other writers. But Ms. Canode's readership and my readership, largely anonymous. What I love is the whole spiritual aspect of my books, Ms. Canode's books, the books of other writers, the books that I've read, Ms. Canode has read, being assessed by people that we will never know in ways that we can never fathom. That, to me, is as inexplicable as the change in dimension and form that defines Beethoven's late string quartets. But anyway, uh, the second one that I remember is that it seems like, um, oh, I know, in L.A., uh, less than 50% of all murders are solved, is what I understand. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, do you, do you have an opinion as to if you feel violence on women has been on the rise? Yes, I don't know about that statistically, okay. but I do know that two things went into this. And your book sounds really good. Yeah. Um, but two things went into this book. One of them actually was because of our friend here, who's, who's LAPD. I asked him one time, I won't identify him in case he's arrested you. Um, but I, I asked him one time what the hardest kind of murder to solve, and he said random murder because there's no connection between the killer and the victim. Um, and that struck me. I wanted to, I wanted to write a book with no forensics. I think forensics have gotten very baroque between CSI and the more elaborate and arcane ways people are trying to solve murders with, with uh, physical material evidence. I just decided I'm going to take everything out of the equation. There are no forensics in this book at all. There's no, there's no time frames. There's no alibis. There's no footprints. There's no fingerprints. There's no nothing. It's just going to be people. And usually this was the second thing that boiled down our friend Dave Lampkin, who used to be head of the LAPD cold case unit, who's a, also a genius. Uh, he said that shows like CSI, I'm sure many of you here have heard this, shows, shows like CSI have completely messed up juries for them, have completely skewed people's idea about chain of evidence, and that most, solve, most solve crimes, solving most crimes boils down to the detective's intuition, which is something the computer can't have and something you can't feed into a computer. And that's what interests me about crime specifically. I wrote a homicide procedure because I needed to learn genre. This book is the first fiction I ever wrote. And I needed to learn yet this available. Um, but um, the second one, I really int what interests me really is the adventure and the chase. And so technical things, and it's very interesting when people are writing interesting books about actual assault rates in LA and actual violence against women and all this kind of stuff, and I'm just interested in the chase and the adventure. And I don't want to go into that, that nitty-gritty of social realism. This book really is based in that, and this book is much more 
just kind of nice, you know, and not. I mean, there's, there's, there's. <laughs> well, there's not about the politics of what's going on. Yeah, in the crimes of, about women and, and the lack of, yeah, and the lack of like all the, these guys are stalking women and the lack of putting these guys in jail. Yeah. No, it's going to all. Of no, no. That. In fact, yes, my feminism, my feminism actually came in a huge, gigantic circle with this book. I started out a little baby in the cradle. James was going, where's the booze? And I was going, aren't we just all equal? And that's all my feminism boils down to, is aren't we just all equal? And why, why, why am I encountering systemic frictions to me just wanting to be myself? And then I got sucked up into that whole theoretical Marxist feminist, psychoanalytic, why the revolution hasn't happened, why conditioned women, violence against women, all that kind of stuff. And I exhausted myself with that thinking. It didn't change the world. It only changed me, right? I can just defend abortion clinics till my, when the cows come home, it doesn't change anything. Um, changed me. And I came back here and back to where I started, which is I just want to do what I want. I want to be on a drilling rig, hand whitehead, on a drilling rig, roughnecking. She gets a job roughnecking with the Oklahoma crew and her Oklahoma tool pusher, and she just wants to do her job. That's it. Just want to do my job. Just want to do what I want to do, and that's what my feminism boils down to. And that's what I can do. Yeah. <coughs> you were mentioning your days at Daily Weekly, yeah. and your music taste, and who you talk to. Back in the day, how did you guys agree on the radio? I mean, it's like, <laughs> did you come to? Was there a common bond? Like we can both listen to this and only this. Or was we there... listen to classical music. Okay. That, that's basically it. But we we didn't really. We really listen to classical music. I've always been so laissez-faire about music. I'll listen to lots of things. And my taste has been criticized. Oh my heavens. My musical taste has been so criticized. Um, so it's not like I'm attached to much of anything. And I was happy to learn about the, the, the romantic. Basically, it's the romantic canon of James, everything between what Beethoven to Rachmaninoff, right? Yes. Is there something that stands out when you were going through the hell that you spoke of before that was a musical indulgence for you? A musical indulgence while I was going through the hell. I can't talk to <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you mean like what would soothe me or something like that? Mm -hmm. or, yeah. or what did you indulge in in a dark way? Oh, no, no darkness. No, no. Yeah. Horseback riding. Didn't need any more darkness. Not when you're laying in bed with the blood in your veins pouring on black acid. You don't need any more darkness. You know, I can't remember what I did. So much of that stuff is blacked out. What did I listen to? I don't remember. Oh, John's greatest hits. But that's right, Fine. You always had something cheerful on the radio, right? You were always listening. You're the rock and roll guy. Oh, okay. No, but yes, no. But that's a good question. But I can't. I don't think I. I, I rode horses really to be happy. Yeah, and, and I think I listened to like greatest hits. I think I may have gone back to like the Guess Who. Uh, I'm, I'm just saying something light, something pop, something not too taxing. Yes. So when you were a couple, you would read each other's works in progress. <laughs> no. Wrong. But. <laughs> <laughs> Killed my question. <laughs> <laughs> you Actually, James was a huge help because I'd never written fiction before. On, on Ticket Out, it went through four drafts. And James is, and I'm not just saying this because I used to be married to him, he's a genius about plot. And 
So he edited, don't let him edit your prose, but let him edit your story. Holy crap. Yeah. It's just straight for the jugular, everything, everything, straight for the narrative jugular, everything. So that's what I learned how to plot from him. And this made this book so much easier because now I knew what, you don't start, the, you don't end the chapter that way, you don't do this. You know, there's just things you don't do, but you don't, you don't let James edit your prose. <laughs> Did you ask Reed to the step first? Yeah. He, he, he just doesn't, you just want me to read the finished manuscript and go, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah, I never, I never. Woman over here. Yeah. Uh, do you still have any hold or You know, I might, in my taste in movies and uh, people here who've been in movies with me have, have become so idiosyncratic. And so, in fact, my friends joke that I just leave my car running in front of the theater. <laughs> because I'll leave. But um, I still love a good movie. And I love John Carter. Ah, got mail. I loved it. And because now I have this whole benevolent universe thing. I have this, I'm looking for specific things in movies now. And it's a benevolent universe. And when you have a couple of strong women characters, even if they're kind of like CGI, kind of standing lizard things, um, I'm happy. If it's not dark, I mean, I just did a gig at the Colorado School of Mines, a um, gig speech called um, How I Stopped Worrying and Learned to Love the Oil Business. Great, a bunch of petroleum engineers. But I also talked to a film class there, the most popular class at the Colorado School of Mines is a film class. And they wanted, they wanted me to talk about acting, and so they sent me their favorite movies. What a tidal wave of bad news and blood running in gutters. I mean, it's everything Warner Brothers has made in the last 10 years, practically, and everything Johnny Depp's ever in. And, and I'm looking at these movies going, this movie makes me sorry to be alive. Look at this view of human nature, and this, look at this darkness. It's just male violence, male force meeting male force. And there's usually a woman in the corner going, ding, 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 ding. And I just, holy cow. And yet, very fine movies, just a cinema. You know, very, very, they were all great directors. All very, not all. Christopher Nolan for me can't direct his way of a wet paper bag. I mean, his movies. But, I mean, you know, Tim Burton and, and there was just all these really good movies, really good directors, and every one of them, I'm just going, don't make me, uh, I can't, too much darkness, it's too dark, it's too dark. It's like, and yet, I'm the person in 1988 who put Watchmen on my top 10 films of the year. I mean, comic books have now swamped, right? Swamped the studios practically, and in 1988, I couldn't find 10 best films, and I put Watchmen on it for graphics, for sense, for adult sense, and for visuals, Watchmen. So, um, you know, I, I'm just, my favorite movies are you know, this congeniality and Legally Blonde. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then, you know, you say, see Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Yes, a perfect movie. A perfect, for me, a perfect movie. <laughs> a perfect movie that I just don't care. Just don't care. Gary Oldman, I mean, I think the guy from the artist when he's just after in the story of the it's the Academy, so it's not serious, but but right. there's Gary Oldman sitting in the theater with right. that guy and you're just going yeah. oh. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. like this, exactly. So a perfect movie, I don't care. And as a reviewer, that's definitely that's what happened to me as a reviewer. There's just so stuff caring about so many things. Perfect movie, 
where you just tap it off the middle of the anchor. I know, I know. And, and then she's, she's generally in a separate movie from the movie she's in. Like, you wish the movie were as good as that yes. performance, right? That the movie she's in, you know? That, that's part of the genre of movies I call it. They start in the same place that they end. What am I sitting here watching? So, uh, I'm not happy or unhappy about it. A lot of people disagree. Very fine actress. She's the only thing to watch in that movie. Oh, she's old now. You know what happened? Why am I sitting in this movie? Ladies and gentlemen, Helen. That may be it. Yes, I think it is. All right. Thank you all. God bless you. Thank you for coming. Helen, did you enjoy it? We'll do it again tomorrow night. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.